Let's pray before we look at this chapter together. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you that your Spirit continues to speak through the words of Scripture. And so, Lord, we pray that as we open your Word, that your Spirit would be at work among us, that you would be our teacher. Lord, we ask that you would give us understanding of this passage. But more than that, Lord, we ask that as we look into it, that we would encounter you. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. Uh, The story is told of uh, a man who decided to go skydiving. Uh, He went into a plane at 30,000 feet and jumped out. And as he was hurtling downwards towards the earth, he began to realize that the parachute that he was attached to uh, wasn't working. At the very same time as he was hurtling downwards, another man came rocketing upwards from the ground into the sky. The man with the parachute who was going down shouted over to the man going up, excuse me, you don't know how these new parachutes work, do you? To which the man on the way up replied, I'm having enough trouble with my new gas barbecue. (laughs) It's a bit of a cheesy joke, but life is full of ups and downs. uh, And it's in those moments when we feel like we're uh, on the mountaintop or when we're in the deepest pit that we're often tempted to question God, to question God's goodness, to question God's plans and God's purposes for our lives. Uh, In a normal group of Christians, like this this morning, there will be those here among us who feel like life is on the up. Uh, Things are going well in terms of key relationships. Uh, Our health is in tip-top condition. Our finances are secure. Uh, Spiritually, we feel alive. And when we read our Bible every morning, uh, it's just a pure delight. We feel like we're on the up. But there will be others among us this morning who feel like life is on a bit of a downwards trajectory. Uh, Our health maybe isn't what it once was. Uh, Important relationships to us have become strained. Or we just don't know how we're going to pay the bills. Uh, Spiritually, we feel drained. Uh, We read our Bibles, but those encouraging promises that we used to love just feel so distant from us. And the gap between what God has said, what he's promised, but what we feel and what we experience is absolutely enormous. I think most of us can understand the idea of questioning God when we feel uh, like we're in the valley, when we're at a low point, when things aren't going well. But surely questioning God's purposes and his plans couldn't happen when we're on the mountaintop and when things seem to be going well. Well, at the beginning of Genesis chapter 15, Abram finds himself at a high point in his life. He has had lots of lows. I think chapter 13 in Egypt was a disaster. But chapter 14 was a bit of a success. Uh, He took part in this daring military mission to rescue Lot, and he also resisted the temptation to do a deal with the king of Sodom. So Abraham is at a high point in his life. Surely he would be feeling strong and secure and full of faith. And yet what do we find at verse 1 of chapter 15? When the word of the Lord comes to him, he's in a state of doubt. And yet what we see is God reaffirms the promises that he had previously made in chapter 12 to Abram, and yet all of the old questions and all of those underlying fears remain in Abram. And so if you're taking headings, the first uh, heading I've given for this morning, and it's it's kind of a, sets the context for the chapter, is this, that Abram brings his questions to God, verses 1 and 2 and 7 and 8. Abram brings his questions to God. Our passage this morning, it's really structured around two questions that Abram asked God in verse 2 
and in verse 8. And both of the questions show that Abram is struggling to come to terms with how God is going to fulfill his promises and his purposes in Abram's life. Have a look there at verses 1 and 2. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me? Since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And then verse 7. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I shall gain possession of it? Previously in Genesis chapter 12, God had promised to make Abram into a great nation who would be a blessing to the entire world. The men last night were at a quiz in the Welcome Center. Here's a rhetorical quiz question. What do you need for a nation? What do you need for a nation? Well, you need two things, don't you? You need a people and you need a place. You need a people and you need a place, otherwise you're not a nation. But Abraham has no people. Uh, He is without children and he has an elderly wife. And Abraham has no place. In fact, the promised land we read of earlier was inhabited by the Canaanites and the Perizzites. So Abraham is finding it difficult to trust in God's plans and God's purposes for his life. The gap between what God has said, what God has promised, and the reality of Abram's life is absolutely huge. And yet, isn't it encouraging that Abram asked these questions in the first place? That he cared about God's plans and purposes for his life? Just think about it. Abram was rich. We know that. He had prospered greatly. Uh, He could have settled somewhere outside of the land of promise. He could have enjoyed his pension. Uh, Many people would be quite satisfied, in fact, with what Abram had. If that's all he wanted in life, then he was sorted. And yet Abram was not content with just living the good life. He hungered to see God's plans and purposes worked out and fulfilled in his life. In fact, it's Abram's faith that provokes the questions that he asks in this chapter. Uh, Abram's doubts, his questions, they're not a sign of the absence of faith. They're actually an indication of his growing faith. Uh, Abram was in the dark about what God was going to do in his life, but he was not in the dark about who God is. It's why throughout the passage, he calls him the sovereign Lord. Uh, He believes in God, verse 6, but that doesn't mean that he never asks questions. So let me ask you this morning, a bit of a personal question, what do you do with your questions? What do you do with your questions? I fear that many of us have bought into the idea that to be honest before the Lord and to be honest before other people is an unspiritual thing to do. And yet here we see Abram and he takes all his questions and he just lays them out before the Lord. It's interesting, isn't it? At no point in the narrative is Abram condemned for bringing his doubts to God. Uh, Abram is very honest with the Lord. And as we're going to see, the Lord is very gentle with Abram. And in this way, I think Abram's a helpful model for us of what faith in a fallen world looks like. Rather than bottling up his questions, he brings them to God, and so too should we. You see, the issue facing Abraham in this passage and facing us as well is this, how do we trust God 
in the ups and the downs of life? How do we live by God's promises, even when questions and doubts remain? The theologian Ronan Keating says, life is a roller coaster. You've just got to ride it. But you know, in this passage, in God's word, God says something far better. God comes to Abram, and he reassures Abram with two absolutely stunning truths. Two truths that Abram could hold on to, but also two truths that you and I can hold on to in the ups and downs of life. Uh, Here they are on the screen, uh, if you're taking headings. The first one is this, God is the powerful creator who can do what he said. God is the powerful creator who can do what he says. And then secondly, God is the covenant maker who will do what he said. God is the powerful creator and God is the covenant maker. So let's take those two in turn. First, God is the powerful creator who can do what he says. Let's pick up the story then in verse uh, three. Abram said, you have given me no children, and so a servant of my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. God took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Uh, Abram doubts that God can do what God has promised. Uh, Sarah's body clock is ticking, and he has no biological offspring. Uh, As things stand, a guy called Eliezer would inherit all his wealth, and centuries down the line, people would read of Abram, the father of nobody. In verse 4, though, God reaffirms his promise to Abram. God says to him, no, Abram, you will have a biological heir. I'm going to do what it is that I've promised. And then in verse 5, God gives him this beautiful visual aid, the stars in the night sky. Just imagine what the exchange there in verse 5 would have been like between Abram and God. God comes to him and he says, Abram, I want you to go outside. I want you to look up. Look up, Abram. I want you to count the stars in the night sky. And Abram thinks to himself, well, you really, you want me to count the stars in the night sky? I can't do that. There's too many. How could I possibly count them all? God says, that's the point. You see those stars in the night sky? Well, in the same way, so shall your offspring be your own biological descendants. God comes, he reaffirms his promises, and he reminds Abram that he is the powerful creator who can do what he has said. Uh, Even when things look impossible from a human perspective, with God, nothing is impossible. Uh, Our experience of life in God's world is one of limitation, isn't it? We are bound by time. We are bound by space. Uh, Human beings are bound by biology. We're bound by the laws of nature. But God is not like us. And God comes to Abram and he says, you think I am bound by biology? I created biology. You think I am bound by the physical laws of the universe? I created those laws. I'm not bound by anything. He says to Abram, look up. Look up and see the bigger picture. I made a million million burning suns and put them in the sky. And if I can do that, then I can give you a million million people to be my people. You know, it's so easy, isn't it, for all of us to put limitations on what God can do in our life. 
I was at a prayer meeting not so long ago, and I made a, a flippant remark that it's not like there's going to be a revival. And in that prayer meeting, someone immediately afterwards prayed for revival. And I took that as a great rebuke because I was putting limits on what God could do in this church and in our life. Do you know, friends, God has made so many promises to us in the gospel. So don't put limits on what God can do. If he said he's going to do it, then he can do it. I read a story of a man called William Carey, who maybe some of you know. He's considered the the father figure of the modern missions movement. And in the 18th century, he preached a really influential sermon that launched the global mission of the church into unreached parts of the world. And he said six little words that kind of woke up a sleeping church in his day. This is what he said. He said, expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. You see, William Carey in the 18th century, he recognized that the church's actions or inactions showed that actually they were living like they believed they lived in a day of small things. And Carey challenged them to expect more and therefore to attempt more. Carey argued that Christians must expect great things from God. And not only must we expect them, but we must attempt great things for God. No matter how small the beginning, no matter how complicated it seems to try and do, in the power of the Spirit, under the authority of the risen Christ, we are to have absolute confidence that God can use our efforts in his service. Do you know, it's only when we expect great things from God that we actually will attempt great things for God. So let me ask us as a church family, do we really expect God to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think or imagine, Ephesians 3.20. Do we see our moment in history as a day of small things where we don't attempt anything for the Lord? Or are we expecting God to be at work in amazing ways in our lives, in the lives of those around us, and in the life of our church? God said to Abram, I will make you into a great nation who's going to be a blessing to the entire world. Abram questioned the Lord because he had no people to make this nation. But God gloriously reassured him that he can do what he said because he is the powerful creator. So that's the first thing we see in our passage, that God is the powerful creator and he can do what he has said. But then secondly, what we see in this passage, and it's probably the main thing, is this, that God is the covenant maker who will do what he says. God is the covenant maker who will do what he said. Let's pick up the story in verse 7. God said to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I shall gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these things to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. We've seen the Lord address Abram's questions about his offspring, about the people, but now God addresses Abram's questions about the land, the land of promise. God's promise of a land should have been enough. He is God. He can't lie. 
And yet again, God graciously comes to Abram and he enters into a covenant by performing this ancient ceremony. Uh, in our modern world, something is legally binding, isn't it, if we sign on the dotted line. So the least romantic, but the most important part of any wedding ceremony is when the couple sign the marriage contract. That's what makes it binding. Uh, when I was a student and my friends and I got our keys for the house, uh, we were given the keys, but then we had to sign uh, the contract. In our culture, in our society, when you sign something, there are consequences if you break your word. That's how we sign things. That's how we make promises. But in the ancient world, uh, things were very different. Uh, that's not how they did it. It wasn't a written culture. It was an oral storytelling culture. And so when in the ancient world you made a contract with someone, what you essentially did was you acted out the consequences of your word before everyone. You acted out the consequences of breaking your word so that everyone could see it. So what would happen is two parties would make promises to each other and then what they would do is they would walk between the pieces of dead animals. And by walking through this bloody corridor, the two parties were effectively saying to each other and everyone watching, may I be like these animals, cut in half, if I fail to keep my end of the agreement. And so what you did was you made your promises and then you acted out the consequences of breaking covenant. I was thinking this would be a great way, wouldn't it, for landlords to get students to uh, behave. You just cut up some animals in the back garden, get the tenants to walk through. But God gives Abram these instructions, verse 9. Abram knows what to do because in verse 10, he sets the ceremony up. He's ready to enter into covenant. By verse 17, uh, everything is, is set up, ready for the two parties to enter into covenant. Let's read from verse 17. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking brazier and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants, I give this land. Uh, who is missing in that scene? Uh, we see this smoking firepot, which is symbolic of God's presence. We see God passes through the pieces. But who is missing in the scene? Well, it's Abram, isn't it? Abram is missing because what is Abram doing? Abram is asleep. And so God passes through the pieces alone. He doesn't turn to Abram. He doesn't wake him up and say, Abram, now you go through the pieces so that you have to keep your side. And actually, this ceremony, even though it's so distant from our experience, it's a beautiful picture of the gospel. It's a perfect illustration of the nature of salvation. Because salvation, the gospel, is not a cooperative effort. The gospel is not God helps those who help themselves. It's not a partnership. Instead, God alone walks through these pieces. And effectively, what he says to Abram is this. I will secure the blessings of the covenant for both of us. Abram, may I be cut off if I don't keep my end of the bargain. But Abram, may I be cut off if you don't keep yours. I will bless you, and I will bless the world through you, even if it means, and it did, that I have to die. And so we see this, see this beautiful pattern emerge, this picture of a God who keeps covenant love with a sinful, undeserving people 
at the cost of his own life. The Lord says, if I fail, I'll die. If you fail, I'll die. But come what may, through bloody sacrifice, through suffering, pain, and death, I will be your God and you will be my people. And of course, it only makes sense, doesn't it, 2,000 years later, when Jesus himself, God himself, in human flesh, died and took on himself all the consequences of our covenant disobedience. On Good Friday on Calvary, another terrible darkness descended on the world. God himself was torn apart and his blood was shed. This was the blood of the eternal covenant that was poured from his veins. God took upon himself the punishment that you and I deserve for not keeping our end of the deal. You and I, we are the covenant breakers, but God took upon himself the curse so that you and I could receive the blessing. And so we see God enter into this covenant. It's a one-way covenant, and it comes at the cost of his own life. As you and I look at this passage, we see the lovely picture emerge, and we see how Christ is the fulfillment of it. But as we look at this chapter, Genesis 15, we are very, very privileged indeed for two reasons. Firstly, we're privileged as we read this passage because we can look back and we can see that God was true to every one of his promises to Abram. Uh, The promise of a nation, the promise of offspring, of land, the promise to be a blessing to the entire world. God gave Abram a son called Isaac. God made Abram into a great nation, in fact, so numerous that they ended up in slavery, just as God predicted in verses 13 to 16 of Genesis 15. And God gave his people a place, the land of Canaan. We can look back and we can see that God was true to everything he said. That's the first reason. But the second reason we're privileged as New Testament Christians is that we can see how significant this chapter is for you and I. The Apostle Paul in Romans says that if you belong to Christ by faith, then you are Abram's offspring and you are heirs to the promise. And the New Testament shows us that the promises that were given to Abram, they kind of had two dimensions to them. They had a partial fulfillment and then they had an ultimate fulfillment. So the promise of a nation had a partial fulfillment in Israel, but it pointed beyond itself to a greater people of God, a people described in Revelation as too great to count from every tribe and tongue and nation. That was the promise of a nation, but there was also the promise of a land, which wasn't just about a little strip in Palestine. The promise of a land, it pointed beyond itself to a greater place that God had prepared for his people, the new heavens and the new earth, a place described again in Revelation where there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And so we can look back as New Testament Christians, we can see these promises to Abram and we can see how they were partially fulfilled in Abram's day, but we can also beautifully see how uh, they pointed to a perfect promise a promise for all of God's people for all of eternity, people like you and people like me. And so this morning, 
You and I can trust God in the ups and downs of life, even when it is that we're full of questions and when it is that life feels like a roller coaster. We can trust in God's power to do all that he has said because he is the powerful creator. And this morning, you and I can trust God even though we come as those who have not kept our end of the deal because God's covenant love is not like human love. Paul in Romans says that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is at Christ. No circumstance, no sin. How can I know, how can you know that God is for you? Well, look to the cross of Jesus and know that although it cost God everything, God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. Let's pray as we finish. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage in Genesis 15. Lord, we thank you for how honest and and real it is about what it means to live by faith in this world. But Lord, we thank you for those precious truths of who you are. You are the powerful creator and you are the covenant maker. Lord, forgive us for the times when we have not kept our end of the bargain. Lord, we come to you as those who have broken covenant. And yet, Lord, we thank you that you on the cross took upon yourself all the consequences, all the punishment for all the times where we have broken covenant. Lord, we thank you for your love. We pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would fill us anew with a deeper, richer sense of your love for us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.